Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts, and on today's episode, we'll start with a segment from one of our summer interns, Victoria Antrim. Victoria talks about the myths of entrepreneurship with Luke Burgess, who started his first company at the age of 24 and by Business Week was named a top 25 entrepreneur under 25 for starting one of the most innovative food access businesses in the country. His most recent ventures integrate Catholic social teaching and have a strong social and cultural mission. After that, we bring you another Upstream segment, the part of the show where we discuss all things cultural. Host Bruce Edward Walker speaks with Jay Bradley Studemeyer, a research assistant at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Jay and Bruce discuss government-funded art in light of the upcoming book, Art from the Swamp. If you're interested in checking out any resources in today's episode, you can find them in our show notes, published each Wednesday at blog.acton.org. Today, we are discussing the myths of entrepreneurship with Luke Burgess, entrepreneur and resident at Catholic University of America, Bush School of Business. Thanks for coming on the show today, Luke. Thanks for having me, Victoria. So to get started, let's talk about successful entrepreneurs. There's a misconception that if an entrepreneur is successful, that he's never failed. Is this true? Yeah. Well, you know, we don't want to fetishize failure, right? We talk about failing fast and whoever fails the most wins. And Silicon Valley does that a lot because failure really hurts. I think what's important to understand is that failure is a skill and we can actually learn to fail well. And if you fail too big, you don't get to fail anymore. And if you never fail, then you haven't actually done anything. So learning to fail well is what's critical. I think every successful entrepreneur that I've ever known has failed. And there's nothing good about failure in and of itself, even though sometimes uh, it can be used as a badge of honor in the entrepreneurial community. But learning to fail well is, is a skill, and that has a lot to do with mindset and attitude. I think there's a lot of skills that we can learn in the process of failure, uh, personal development, developing virtues, um, learning that uh, – I can give you an example of something that I learned putting myself out there in a public invisible way, because when I don't do that and I fail, uh, I can very easily find excuses for why I failed. Right. I have a friend who tried to quit smoking for five years and he he would never tell anybody when he was going to to attempt to quit, uh, which meant that when he failed, he wasn't accountable and he could come up with all kinds of reasons when he actually put it out there, it took it to a whole different level and he couldn't tell himself some of those lies about why he failed. So that's one of those things that I've, I've learned to do. I take visible and public roles and when I fail, I've, I've, I have failed publicly and I've learned more from that than sort of those invisible things that I've tried to, to keep hidden. On the same note of skills that entrepreneurs have, it's a common understanding that a formal business background is required to be an entrepreneur. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I studied business in undergrad, but I don't have an MBA. Um, there's a great book that I would recommend called The Illusions of Entrepreneurship by a guy named Scott Shane. And he says, you know, education and business is good up to a certain extent, but just don't get a PhD because then all you'll do is talk about business and entrepreneurship like me. Right? So I am a huge fan of the liberal arts and the humanities. And I have to be honest, if I could go back and do it all over again, I would probably have majored in something like English or literature, philosophy in undergrad. 
because business at the end of the day is, you know, has a lot to do with understanding people and human nature. And that's what we learn in the humanities. So I, there's so many people I can, t- I can tell you that have no really formal business education. I believe Carly Fiorina uh, studied medieval history in undergrad. Uh, Ken Chanel, CEO of American Express, was a history major. Sam Paul Masano, former CEO of IBM, history major. Hank Paulson studied English. Carl Icahn, philosophy at Princeton. So these are all people that have went on to be very successful leaders and CEOs that had degrees in the humanities. So I would say formal business education is nice, and I do have some of it, but by no means is it a requirement to be a good entrepreneur. There's this common misconception that it's all about the product or whatever great idea you have that will ultimately determine your success. Is it is that all that matters? Yeah, absolutely not. I, I think people can get lucky and stumble on a great product idea, but eventually the luck runs out because an idea is not a business. An idea is the start of putting together a business model and a, and a business canvas. So sure, ideas are important, there's no doubt, but so are all of the, the human virtues that come into play that ultimately mean the difference between success and failure. Magnanimity, patience, fortitude, perseverance, prudence. These are entrepreneurial virtues that turn ideas into success. And I would say there's a myth in the entrepreneurial world that good ideas and products sell themselves. And I think nothing can be further from the truth. I think that the role of sales is really underappreciated. And it requires a certain amount of humility to say, hey, I'm an entrepreneur and I've got this great idea, but it's not going to go anywhere unless I bring in somebody who's a better salesperson than me. Some entrepreneurs are really good at sales, but most that I know are not. I'm not. And I know that the first person I need to bring in is a good salesperson because good ideas really don't sell themselves. Yeah, it's really dependent on that support that you have around you. As far as the success of entrepreneurs, Everyone believes that it's such an easy way to get rich. This obviously isn't true for all entrepreneurs. Yeah. I mean, in one sense, yes, but in another sense, no. So first of all, it depends on what your definition of rich is. Um, I would say if you want to be a billionaire or you want to make a lot of money and be in the top, you know, 1% of people, you're probably not going to do it by going to work for 25 years and earning a salary. Um, it's going to come from having an ownership and an equity stake in something. And uh, that often happens through entrepreneurship. So on the other hand, um, it is extremely difficult being an entrepreneur. There's a lot of myths out there. I think one third of companies make it seven years. Most entrepreneurs actually make less than they would make if they were working in a traditional industry in a corporation. So it's hard. Um, and when entrepreneurs do make it, uh, they they can have a big exit or a big payout, but it often takes years and years of, of hard work. I mean, when I started my first company after college, I worked for three years just drawing the minimum salary that I could to get by and pay my rent at the end of the month. Then I left a job that paid me a multiple of what I was drawing in salary, and it took a long time before it really paid off. Besides the whole getting rich is one of the attractive features of being an entrepreneur, there's also a myth about freedom and that there's unlimited freedom when you get to work for yourself. Yeah, you know, definitely not unlimited, that's for sure. The only area where I've actually experienced more freedom as an entrepreneur, and I've really been one since I was 23, is in how I get to use my time. But of course, time is not unlimited. It's very limited. And as an entrepreneur, uh, you know, 
there's a lot of responsibilities and, and in fact, more responsibilities, not less. So I had a very brief career on Wall Street, like nine months before I left and started my first company. And, you know, I left Wall Street, you know, I was working 90 hours a week. It's one of the reasons I left thinking that entrepreneurship would just give me this bunch of freedom and I could, uh, you know, work when I wanted to. Well, it turns out that I had more responsibilities when I owned my own company than when I was an investment banker. And I was the first person to get the phone calls at 10 p.m. So in some senses, uh, related to my greater expanded responsibilities, uh, I had less freedom to do what I wanted because I now have, you know, responsibility for people's lives that I've partnered with and people that I've hired and brought into the company. But I, I really do appreciate that I can spend my time on the things that I think are creating the most value, which I couldn't always say when I work for somebody else. Sure. Now that we've covered a bunch of myths, can you give us just one truth of entrepreneurship? One truth of entrepreneurship. Yeah. I think the only way to know whether you want to be an entrepreneur or whether you're creating value as an entrepreneur is by doing it and by seeing what the response is uh, in the market, right? So, you know, oftentimes there are public policies and messaging that seem to say the more entrepreneurship, the better. With entrepreneurship in, in and of itself is always a good thing or more entrepreneurs is, is a good thing. What we need is the right entrepreneurs doing the right things and actually creating value. And I think that the value creation piece is critical and the only way to know whether or not you can create value is by actually going out and seeing what the response is to whatever it is that, that you're offering. Thank you so much, Luke, for clearing up some of these false ideas. This is Victoria Antrim, and you're listening to Radio Free Acton. As one of only two presidents to have never formally joined a church, people have wondered just how much Abraham Lincoln himself was under God when he said that the United States should consider itself as such as it strove for a new birth of freedom. However, the Civil War shifted the ground decisively under Lincoln's feet. In the cauldron of war, he discovered that God was not merely a remote force or a faceless universal power, but a personal, intelligent, and willing God who intervened in the affairs of men to direct them in ways that they could not even begin to imagine. Join us tomorrow, August 9, at the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan, to hear Alan Gelzo speak on Abraham Lincoln's moral constitution. You can register for this event at acton.org events. Hello and welcome to Upstream. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and today I'm talking to Jay Bradley Studemeyer, who was working on the new book, Art from the Swamp, published by Encounter Books and written by the late Bruce Cole. Hello, Jay. How are you today? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yes. Well, what we're going to be talking about today is a little bit of a stretch for Upstream in that we are talking about art, but we're also talking about politics. Uh, we're talking about public funding for the arts, which was uh, one of Bruce Cole's main points of interest. Uh, he was the former chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved in the project and uh, tell us exactly what your contribution to the project was. Well, Bruce, um, Bruce was an exceptional man and he kind of 
used his critiques of the programs that he uh, that he targeted in this book, and he used them in his own life to try and determine how he behaved. So I appeared kind of out of nowhere. I appeared on his doorstep at uh, the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, no prior relationship. Um, he asked me you know, what I knew about the subject, and it was admittedly very little. Um, but he gave me a little bit of a test and said, if you can do this, you get the job. And that started our collaboration, working on this project uh, about the first that started with the Art and Architecture Program and the uh, General Services Administration. And then as Bruce's work on the Eisenhower Memorial Commission uh, kind of kicked into high gear, we started to address that. And then finally, the uh, National Endowment for the Arts. So I worked with Bruce from late 2016 until he passed away in early 2018. Um, and it was just an absolute pleasure to kind of learn at the feet of a master. And whenever he passed away, we had most of the book written, um, but it was really a, pro you know, a, a process of shaping it into something that could be brought, uh, brought out to the public. And so I, I want to do my best to state that this is Bruce's work, and I was really just there to uh, bring his voice out in the end. Well, it, it's terrific. It's, it's a short book, and again, the title is Art from the Swamp. How Washington Bureaucrats Squander Millions on Awful Art. And you begin with a conversation, or I should say, Mr. Cole, and you begin with a conversation on the Eisenhower Memorial. So tell us a little bit about the background of that. Sure. So um, Bruce actually came into this process of creating uh, a memorial dedicated to Dwight Eisenhower on the National Mall. He came into this process kind of in media's rays where um, – from the early, uh, from the earliest point in its uh, kind of imagining, this process was railroaded by uh, a collection of senators and private citizens um, that wanted a and we should say that on the we should say Mall. that it was a, a bipartisan as well that politicians that railroaded. That was, yeah, that's an important theme that kind of runs throughout this book. Is that. Um, Whenever you're inclined to think that this is a one-party issue, you find contributions from both sides that are quite troubling. And um, from the beginning, this project was bipartisan, um, a collection of congressmen, senators, and private citizens who were there to create a monument to Dwight Eisenhower. Including Eisenhower's um, family. Including members of Eisenhower's family, his uh, grandchildren. And there was kind of a rotating cast of family members who were for it and then against it and then for it again. Um, a big maelstrom of just confusion, and so Bruce was appointed to this um, appointed to this committee relatively late in the process. But he got to kind of see from the inside um, just the bureaucratic mess that it was um, creating a monument that really had no public backing or any public upsurging saying that we want this monument. Well, let's let's move forward from uh, the Eisenhower Memorial to. The your your next chapter where you're talking about government funded architecture. We, we admittedly there's just some hideous government funded architecture out there. Oh sure, and you know that's one of the that's one of the strengths I think of this book that um you know might run a little bit beneath the surface is that people who would want to attack Bruce as you know uneducated or unsophisticated or just another person saying you know that he hated art. Those those criticisms are going to be baseless because this was a man with, you know, a long background in art history. He knew art and he loved it. And when he saw bad art, he had no problem saying that it was bad art. And with the art and architecture program, he thought 
the bad art all started from this process where the artist was picked before any artwork was ever even put on the table, that the art and architecture program was there to create art that pleased critics you know, the day it was announced, but it wasn't there to be appreciated by future generations of citizens or really even most of the citizens in the present moment. Uh, let's go to the National Endowment for the Arts because this is, this is something that I've written on quite a bit in the, in the past. And uh, I, I, I'm looking at page 91 of the, uh, the advanced copy of the book that I have, and I'm looking at you know, numbers that are just mind-boggling, staggering that the National Endowment for the Arts has you know, $50 million to state, territory, and regional arts councils. That, that, that is just stupendous. I mean, the, the beginning of the NEA was uh, part of the Great Society program. So, so talk a little bit about the history of that and the amount of monies that went to it. And then we'll get into some specifics of the artwork and presentations that uh, is funded with, with my money and your money. And, and my right. producer Caroline yeah. Roberts' money. Right, it's the uh, it's your money, and you're probably never going to know how it's spent. With the uh, with the NEA, obviously, it's that fifty million dollar total each year that's being distributed to the states, the territories, and the regional art councils. And the idea behind that distribution uh, in the beginning was that well, this will plant the seeds for art in you know each of these communities, and it'll create kind of a a seeding effect that local artists will then be inspired by that art and it will create some sort of self-sustaining uh, self-sustaining scene. But we know that hasn't happened. And furthermore, this money that's you know, supposed to be pretty uh, explicitly divided up, you see it being circulated around between uh, you know, a state art council can receive money but then give it right back to a regional art council to determine how it's going to be distributed. So it creates this you know, bureaucratic kind of cesspool where – the um, the money, it keeps growing almost year after year. We have a chart, I believe, in the back of the book that shows, um, you know, how the money is increased. But it's it's, it's a nightmare. It, well, it looks almost like a Jackson Pollock, uh, the trying to follow the money as it goes in and out of all of these different councils and, and groups. And it's I've had similar experiences trying to document where the money comes from and where it goes in public broadcasting. Because it's the same quagmire. You, it's just difficult to determine how much money is going where and who's paying for what. And then at the end of the day, uh, you have individuals like Garrison Keeler or uh, uh, Sesame Street who are making just bundles of money off of merchandise. Right. Yeah. And um, you know that's kind of that. That was another theme in all of this is that the uh, you know there's this idea that. It's welfare for the rich or welfare for the elite that artists who already have an established reputation are getting the bulk of these funds and then you know improving their own reputation and money making abilities off of it well and one of those would be uh, Alexander Calder and you write uh, in the book about something that uh, is installed just a few blocks from where I'm recording this in the Acton Institute studios. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. With the, uh, with the Calder piece, um, there was this real resistance to it being installed at the beginning. But as with most of these pieces, there was someone influential behind it who essentially stated that this needs to be here, and we know better than the members of the community what is needed. Uh, Calder designed it and built it in France and shipped it over. And whenever people questioned him about it, said, well, why are you – 
taking over the identity of this city and putting your own mark on it. He essentially said, well, the uh, the plaza where this piece is installed, it belongs to the piece now. So it's really nothing that can be argued. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a great bit of arrogance, really. Um, and the piece is called La Grande Vitesse, and it's there, there's no discernible tie-in with the community. But that just continues this theme that you see um, in the art and architecture program where there's no ties between the art and the community. There's no preference given to the artist's origin or location. There's no uh, concern really for regional art themes or practices. So you get these monstrous pieces that seem placeless placed into communities where people are only going to be confused. Well, and, and to uh, maybe bait some of uh, the individuals who actually support government-funded art, uh, uh, I will put myself on the line as a Philistine to say, okay, there's a lot of just nonsense that is being funded by this. Uh, uh, in the book, there's Ann Carlson's Doggy Hamlet. Uh, there's Walls, which is uh, giving money to mimes in San Francisco to talk about gun control and immigration and what have you. And you can take this all the way back to the kerfuffle over Andre Serrano and Robert Maplethorpe. And uh, for Serrano, we'll just say PC for the title of something that is obviously not PC. And Robert Maplethorpe's The Perfect Moment, which uh, is pretty objectionable to the, the rank and file of American taxpayers. Absolutely. And um, with pieces like that, any of these pieces that tend to take a political uh, political line, which admittedly seems to be quite a lot of them, you have to wonder whether this is really the funding of art or the funding of outright propaganda. Um, and it's a difficult line to draw, but whenever whenever the question comes up, you, you ask why uh, why art is being funded at all by the federal government. And that's something that Bruce and I uh, spent a lot of time kind of talking back and forth about. And Bruce was nothing if not a realist. He saw that, you know, if after Serrano and, Ma and Mapplethorpe, if, af if after those two, you know, federal funding for the arts still was there, then there was no real chance of ever doing away with them entirely. So the focus had to be on reforming them. And it's bringing to light pieces like Doggy Hamlet, where you know, uh, sheepdogs are used to herd sheep in a field, um, supposedly inspired by the Shakespeare work Hamlet, or by this uh, mind play called Walls. Um, it, it's focusing in on those to make the public aware of them that could actually bring about reform. Well, it certainly got my, my, my blood boiling, but uh, it's always been on a, a low boil anyway. Do we really need government-funded art? Would art survive without the government's interference? Oh, I think that that's beyond uh, a shadow of a doubt. Of course it would. And, uh, you know, great art is constantly being produced without government uh, assistance. But, you know, this is one of the, this is one of the big issues um, that we attempted to work around is regardless of the need, regardless of any demonstrable evidence that you can give, Art is going to be made by the federal government, or it's going to be supported by the federal government. It's you know, a sad reality, but I think it's a reality nonetheless. And you know, it has to do with that uh, with the Reagan quotation, right? That the closest thing you can get to immortality is a government program. And you know, if that's if that's the truth, and unfortunately, I think it is, then what we can hope to do is try and shepherd it into a place where this money is being spent. Um, 
you know, more responsibly. It isn't being used by people kind of behind these uh, these walls and in shadowy places to give money to their friends. It's not being used to make out-and-out statements about, you know, some sort of controversy of the day, but it's being made to, um, it's being used to make beautiful works of art that tell the stories of our country, tell, tell the stories of our values, what's gotten us to this point and where we think we're going. I, I can't remember the last time, or actually I can't remember any time I've ever spoken to a friend about, you know, art at a uh, federal building. Hey, we need to go see this for the purpose of, you know, seeing a beautiful work of art. Now I've taken plenty of friends over to federal buildings to see the monstrosities in front. Um, but the fact that citizens aren't queuing up outside of federal buildings to see these impassioned, beautiful works of art, that should be a pretty clear sign right there that whatever they're doing right now is not working. I'm talking with Jay Bradley Studemeyer, who helped finish the book Art from the Swamp, written by Bruce Cole and released by Encounter Books. Jay, thank you so much for explaining the book to us and uh, your sharing your experiences with, with Bruce Cole. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Well, great. And for Upstream, I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. I'd like to thank my producer, Caroline Roberts, and my executive producer, John Coritas. For Upstream, again, I'm Bruce Edward Walker, and we'll talk to you again next week. And with that, we've come to the end of another episode. Thank you for listening today. Let your friends know that you can now find Radio Free Acton on most podcast apps, along with Spotify and YouTube. If you're interested in reaching our podcast team here at the Acton Institute, you can email us at rfa at acton.org, or you can leave us a message at 888-705-4180. Lastly, if you like what you hear on Radio Free Acton, don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes. This episode is produced by myself, Caroline Roberts, and edited by Nathan Moore. 